0: And welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co host, Kate
1: Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric.
0: On this week's show, we have a double header with two TV scholars. First up is my conversation with Hunter Hargraves, who joins us to talk about his new book, Uncomfortable Television, exploring how post millennial American TV glues viewers to the screen with harrowing and disturbing content that we just can't seem to get enough of. After that, Kate and I check in with LARB TV editor Phil Masiak to discuss his book, Avidly Reads, Screen Time, a look at the proliferation of lives and narratives on the screens that are now ubiquitous in our daily lives.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to um, be listening to these conversations in the midst of a writer's strike and, mm-hmm. and one that is centered on streaming, which is now you know the way that most people watch their TV.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Phil's book... Kind of deals a lot with Mad Men, which we were just talking before we got on about how Mad Men started in 2007. And 2007 was also when Netflix just began testing out the kind of waters of streaming. And I know that when I talk to Hunter, we talk a lot about reality TV, which, as uh, many listeners may know, experienced a tremendous boom. In the wake of the last writer's strike when studios and production houses kind of scrambling to create content were like let's try reality tv that doesn't need quote unquote writers you know even though as everybody knows it's unscripted but heavily produced let's say right
1: i was hearing that in the first writer's strike well not the first but in a writer's strike that happened you know a couple decades ago that's when the show cops started and in the last mm. writer's strike from 2008, that's when they decided on The Apprentice to put Donald Trump on.
0: Oh no. Oh my God. These are ter- <laughs> so, so, <laughs> great historical uh, touchstones, but like know, terrifying uh, too.
1: <laughs> with the fight for equity, also comes some very awful cultural pitfalls. So let's yeah. hope this strike doesn't last too long because God knows uh, what could happen. On TV. It's going to be real uncomfortable, uh, per your discussion with (laughs) Dr. Hargo. Speaking of uncomfortable television, I think it could get really bad. And obviously,
0: just want to reiterate our support for the writers, you know, as people that are in the kind of community of people who commit words to page, and those words go everywhere in the world, definitely supporting writers who are trying to get paid amidst a kind of changing industry in TV, but also publishing that is making that difficult as we kind of make leaps forward in technology, sometimes it can feel a little bit like a step back for the people that are creating all of this prestige content.
1: Yeah. I was telling you that my father was a member of the WGA for my entire life and mm-hmm. you know that was great healthcare when I was able to access it. Yeah, I love that this is a union town, and uh, we support writers. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, the strike. Maybe there will be some trickle down from this strike, and novelists and uh, essay writers and journalists can take note and demand better rates because we all know that's a major issue.
0: Yes, for sure. All right, well, let's get into those conversations. Great. I'm excited to have Hunter Hargraves, Associate Professor of Cinema and Television Arts at CSU Fullerton with me on the line today. Hunter joins us to talk about his new book, Uncomfortable Television, published recently by Duke University Press. In Uncomfortable Television, Hunter argues that since the dawn of the new millennium, American television has kept audiences glued to the screens with intensely plotted and character-driven dramas that borrow from the epic aesthetics of cinema as well as reality programming that takes us into surreal new worlds that are our own but also not. At the same time, Hunter says, and I think any contemporary viewer would find it really hard to disagree with him— Contemporary TV shellacks us with disturbing images and themes like graphic sex, addiction, misogyny, racialized violence, despicable antiheroes, and the exploitative world of ordinary people sharing profound pain for a national audience of millions. But what's unique about this peak TV programming is that it encourages us to find pleasure in being disturbed, training us to survive in an increasingly precarious world that it also asks us to surrender to. Welcome to the show, Hunter. It's a pleasure to have you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a treat to be able to discuss the book with you.
0: So let's start off by talking about what is post-millennial TV? You know, kind of what would we say or it's, and I know this is an impossible first question, but what are its kind of broad characteristics, just so our listeners can wrap their heads around it?
2: Yeah, so... My book makes essentially a historical kind of argument at its core even though it's kind of gussied up in this in this grand two word title of comfortable television but I'm thinking about what I call post millennial television and the changes that happened within it and by post millennial television I'm thinking about kind of around the early to mid 2000s the aughts to the sort of mid 2010s sort of the period immediately following the new millennium. And I use post-millennial in the book as a, just because I feel like it has a, it's slightly less tedious than to say early 21st century television and to be sort of more precise about those dates. But yeah, thinking about a lot of the changes that have happened to television in that sort of 10 to 15 years. And we're very familiar with a lot of those changes. Reality television explodes and takes over primetime programming Television becomes serialized first in these kinds of prestige, HBO, AMC dramas, but now kind of across all different genres. We start to see fan cultures move from formerly cult television sort of genres to now fans are everywhere in every kind of program. And with that comes the democratization of television criticism first through blogs and sort of early recaps, but now of course through podcasts and social media and, and other kinds of paratexts. So yeah, we see a lot of these changes including, you know, and of course more money gets pumped into television at this time too, better aesthetics, higher production value, which leads to a number of critics sort of saying that during this time, television is also being sort of artistically legitimated. So we know all of these changes to television because they're the ones that the industry and a lot of scholars comment frequently on, right? And the book is sort of saying like, but guess what? There's this this sort of undercurrent, affective undercurrent that is accompanying all
0: of these changes. And that is this turn to pleasurable discomfort. In view of that turn, let's talk about reality TV. So I know that reality TV gets supercharged as a response really to the writer's strike when networks have to come up with content and they're like, but we don't have writers for all of our scripted shows, so let's go unscripted. Let's see how that works. Turns out it was a bet that really paid off I know it's a broad and diverse genre that spans everything from Real Housewives, which I've recently fallen in love with, to My Strange Addiction and My 600 Pound Life. Those shows, I guess they're all disturbing in their own way, but I think what connects them is this more generalized anxiety among viewers, particularly I think of our generation, so of kind of millennials and zennials who are living in a time of both unmitigated and unprecedented publicity. So our social media feeds that can broadcast us to like millions of people will never see, but also devices that listen and watch us in our homes is kind of like digital assistance. And so in a weird way, I think part of the discomfort is watching these people perform a live wire act of sharing things about themselves and always tending towards the most personal, the most painful, the most intense for the entire world to see. And I think that this is part of the discomfort is watching someone else's really cringe moment, but also then being like, oh my God, like at any moment that could be me. So there's a very strange identification with people on TV at a time of peak publicity and also the peak risk of publicity.
2: Yeah, there's, I mean, it's it's interesting too, because in that sort of very early 2000s, and I love that we're having this like early 2000s nostalgia and sort of like renaissance, stylistic renaissance, because, you know, that's this era also of like really wild sort of reality television, like this kind of pre-writer strike, right? Like it's almost this wild frontier in which you've got shows like Temptation Island and who wants to marry a multimillionaire and a lot of these very unhinged programs. And I think there's clearly some element of sort of schadenfreude, like happening, like within that and sort of identifying with the kind of cringe or the pathos of the subject who is exposed too much on this. But It's happening at the same time that social media is just starting to like put its tentacles in kind of our everyday life. So as you know, first reality television, then social media starts to model these practices of surveillance and confession that you were sort of alluding to earlier. Right. It's important to think about how reality television, both in its sort of like its claim to reality, even though the the savvy reality television spectator knows that there's, it's not quite real, right? Like, the Real Housewives are are very staged in their melodrama, right? But, so it comes from both this kind of, I think, guessing what's staged, what's not staged, right? So in the case of the Real Housewives, it's like, some of that discomfort comes from watching someone sort of act too hard, or act not enough, or, you know, like the acting is somehow off than what we kind of expect it to be. But it's also in terms of like thinking about those incredibly vulnerable and intense moments that seem like they're sort of manufactured for spectacle, but do have their roots in a very kind of like real and I think powerful discomfort. So I'm thinking of Tyra Banks yelling at Tiffany in America's Next Top Model, famously, like, I have never yelled at a girl in my life like this, right? Take responsibility. We were all rooting for you, right? Like, and and I know many people of my generation that can recite that monologue from memory in part because it is an iconic moment of reality television, but it's one that I, I can't help but watch and feel an insane amount of, of sort of discomfort and not just liking it for its maybe sort of its camp value in that kind of like reception mode, but also because, you know, she's yelling at a girl who is at the time, like, very poor, has just performed her sob story, right, but is not performing enough within the terms of the competition, which makes it, which takes it from this just necessarily sort of voyeuristic mode and I think really does create a lot of kind of circuits of empathetic identification that help us sort of latch onto this girl's play and to think about it as a kind of, like, this is supposed to be just a a saccharine modeling competition. And here we are actually like having an identity crisis in the middle of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's so much there. The identification and over-identification, I mean, that's the other weird hook of reality TV is that you are seeing, as you said, lightly scripted, but like real people. And I think, you know, to think too about, as the performers, let's use that word, become more aware of the apparatus and the media ecosystem around it. This is particularly true, I think, of Real Housewives. The other thing that becomes really uncomfortable for me to watch is the live wire act of them understanding that they have to be dramatic enough to stay on the show, but not do something so crazy that it damages their brand, and you know, which is very consciously constructed also, and puts sponsorships and other money at risk and or gets them in legal trouble. I mean, there's just so much going on in a simple, you know, of like, oh, you look so pretty. Oh my God, rosé all day. (laughs) And that lightness and darkness at the same time is also constitutive in a broader way of the kind of era of television that you're talking about. I think you could map that kind of thing straight to euphoria, where it's like kids having fun, but also in the darkest and most adult way possible.
2: In the book, I think about reality television primarily from what I call recovery television, which looks at a lot of programs that are rooted around kind of questions of addiction or compulsion. So My Strange Addiction, but also Intervention and Hoarders and a lot of shows of, of that ilk from the, especially that were very popular in the late 2000s and early 2010s. The thing with something like Intervention is that it the question of performance is really interesting because This is a series that is profiling individuals addicted to drugs and or alcohol, right? So how they perform their addiction is a really sort of fascinating and layered performance because on the one hand, it is the quote unquote sort of most real that you can get, right? Like as if there's no performance because they're high on drugs, right? Like they're out of their minds, right? Right. And yet, on the other hand, there's this sort of tension between like, how is the question of how the subject is performing their addiction becomes really instrumental to the logic of the show, which has to show you the subject sort of incapacitation followed by a family conflict, right? A stage sort of family conflict, the intervention that then produces this kind of climactic result for the cameras. So there's this, I like that this, like you're describing a kind of oscillation between lightness and darkness, right? And that oscillation is also kind of in conversation with another oscillation between sort of like the too real and the not real enough, right? Like, or this demand to perform with the kind of like failure to perform adequately.
0: Yes, absolutely. So I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about nostalgia, which you, you also grapple with. And you explore this really well through, and I hope that others will look at these videos because they were, as kind of a child of the late 80s, you know, who definitely grew up with Gem and the Holograms, Sienna D'Enema's hilarious web series, Jizz, is at once a perfect send-up of that, 80s TV show, which is, and we're going to get into this, it's its own weird like feminist but also deeply conservative 80s view of a glamorous corporate mogul slash super hip musician who's constantly shuttling between two identities. And that story, so the visuals from that show get remixed with the vocals of a kind of husky voice drag queen that turn this kind of, as I was saying, feminist show into a run of rough body, sex, and abortion jokes that were obviously never part of the original material. And, you know, when you're talking about the remix, and here I think we're talking specifically about a kind of queer remix, it's playfully disturbing and irreverent, but in a way that I think shows a very different approach to nostalgia for the millennial or zennial viewer. So I'm curious if, like, the way that it's treated in jizz is suggests to me that maybe our generation is incapable of looking back on childhood objects in media as completely innocent in the way that I think other generations might have been able to. Because from the vantage point of the present, while we love the memories that that old media serves up, we also recognize them as violent, consumerist, anti-feminist, anti-queer, and thus in the remix we get a kind of opportunity to take, for lack of a better word, like revenge on these objects that we also adore. It's like a very interesting set of affective exchanges that I would just love to hear you talk about a little bit more.
2: I really like how you're framing it as a question of almost kind of like generational access, right? Like, so yes, you should all be watching Sienna de Enema's Jizz. It's an exemplary televisual remix in that it takes a very familiar kind of Saturday morning cartoon, and dubs over it, eviscerates it with new dialogue, new storylines that really more closely resemble something like South Park or Robot Chicken in their kind of like equal opportunity offender ethos. What I find really interesting about Jizz and other forms of televisual remix is how they really complicate this idea of remix as being this unmitigated like benefit to society, the way that it's often sort of styled as a form of cultural literacy. And so like, in a weird way, that question of like cultural literacy is sort of revived by your invocation of this kind of generational tie, right? So as a, when I was watching *Gem and the Holograms as a child, as a boy who did not like know yet he was queer, I was into Gem and the Holograms, but I couldn't necessarily access the text in any sort of like meaningful way. Of course, the most meaningful way to access a text like Gem and the Holograms is to buy the merchandise. And my parents wouldn't let me buy the merchandise because that would have meant sort of, you know, buying dolls, right? Like there is a way in which like, for me as a queer viewer who was interested in in Gem, jizz comes around and I think you're right. There is this kind of like, okay, now let's, we can finally insert ourselves into that conversation. We can finally have a queer gem. Of course, that's going to look very different. And those codes are going to be scrambled such that instead of running an orphanage, as in Gem and the Holograms, Jiz in this remixed web series is running an abortion clinic, right? And so, yeah, I'm very much interested in the ways in which, you know, both remix and queer as verbs have this kind of like unsettling, they're going to be doing some scrambling, right? Things are going to get moved around. One of the things I'm really interested in is when we talk about how we queer something or when we remix something, to think about what affects are lost rather than what affects are sort of added, as in that sort of like accumulatory positive benefit. You know, when we talk about remix as being like the new cultural literacy and TikTok is a very like great example of that in which it's, sort of being read as this app that can bestow literacy onto an entire generation, Gen Z, right? Like through these like principles of of remixing and copying and and adding.
0: Yeah. And I mean, they're also subsumed into, and I think this is the broader part, you know, that goes even beyond kind of queer remix culture, which is to think about reboot culture, which in our contemporary period, it, it almost always tends toward let's say, dark affect or aesthetics. So, for example, you get Sabrina the Teenage Witch, a lighthearted comedy starring the most white bread of white girls, Melissa Joan Hart, and which is not a knock against her, but that's the character that she's playing. And then you get Curious Adventures of Sabrina, which is about giving yourself over to Satan and having all these friends that are like, you know, so there is like, or Riverdale is another version of that, taking the world of Archie and actually making it like quite dark. But I think this gets to my last question for you, which is that you make a a really interesting, and I think when listeners read it, it is almost immediately convincing and kind of obvious, which is that the disturbing nature of modern TV at once reflects our experiences in a neoliberal culture of constant precarity and disaster, at the same time that it is shaping how we should respond to those very experiences and conditions. So on the one hand, we can see this as TV's reemergence as the deeply conservative medium that it actually always has been, no matter how many of our stories from the margin kind of flicker across the screen. But I'm also wondering about the ways in which the uncomfortable perhaps becomes a kind of palliative in a world where we mostly feel either bored or exhausted, you know, and those are related affects, I think. So yeah, just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about that.
2: I love that question because it also sort of says like, but weren't spectators bored and exhausted when watching television, like in the 20th century too, right? Like in this like very, you know, I've just come home from a very long day's work and I just want to sit in front of the television and I don't want to have to think anymore. Right. That kind of the specter of the passive audience member is always kind of like resurrected in these, in these scenarios. You know, I think that television, as still the most like popular and pervasive form of mass media in our global society, it always is going to operate within the structures of sort of economic and political governmentality. Back in the 50s, it's teaching a generation of of veterans and people who have just won World War II, right? How to live within this new consumer economy. You have to like have all of the right appliances, including a television, and you have to watch these like horrible commercials in exchange for your entertainment. But it's going to teach you what it means to live in this new American middle class. And Same now, television still teaches us how to exist within the contemporary economy. It's just that the economic terms have changed radically into more precarious structures, into structures without welfare safety nets. And with that kind of to resurrect Tyra Banks once again, like take responsibility for yourself, right? This neoliberal ethos that requires you to always be hustling, always be gigging, always be selling yourself. I think in the book, the example that I have sort of best used to that effect is the first chapter when I look at girls and the celebrity sort of persona of Lena Dunham. And there's been a little bit, there's been some media articles about like how people are rewatching girls and sort of revisiting it and also revisiting the kind of misogyny that Lena Dunham was sort of arguing against 10 13 years ago when the show started and there were a lot of kind of concerns over that she's showing too much skin or that she's doing too much within the series. And, you know, there's certainly a cultivation of an affect of irritation, right? Like it's an irritating show and she is an irritated character. Hannah in there. And I think it's really tempting to read sometimes the act of calling out or of trolling or of expressing irritation in sort of witty and performative ways as being a specifically kind of millennial mode of address. The idea that, like, millennials just sort of like to talk about how problematic everything's are without offering any kind of constructive solutions or or they're too bored and exhausted to like actually go find the job, right? Like they'd rather just complain and about how irritating it is to like find work. But I think one of the sort of affective benefits of that calling out, of that trolling is the feeling of perhaps solidarity that you get with others when you talk about, when you call out larger economic structures. So Girls is very open on this front, right? That it's because of the 08 recession that there is now limited economic mobility for young millennials, especially young millennial women at this time. And thus to be irritated is a weapon of survival that a lot of young girls must use in this sort of post-post-feminist, you know, because they're not allowed to be, the women of girls are not allowed to be the women like Sex in the City, right? They're not allowed to have the kinds of like careers that would invite this kind of like post-feminist dilemma between like work and family or career and personal life. And so girls can't quite perform its perform that kind of economic narrative just because it can't. And so instead you have these kinds of call outs, you have these kinds of quips that come across as kind of entitled irritation, but actually become a larger sort of commentary on what it's like to be working and living within this injured economy. And I think that's where this sort of interesting dynamic between sort of like, well, can these negative affects of discomfort like become reclaimed at all? Or do they have a kind of like political valence, which might speak to the sort of questions of exhaustion? It's really hard to make irritation like political because it's supposed to just be this kind of like quiet frustration rather than this kind of like act of rage, something that would incite political action.
0: Right. And then what becomes even more complicated with the example of girls is that on the one hand, you can have exactly who you're talking about, the disempowered, disenfranchised millennial subject, who is watching these women on screen performing her, her experience or an experience very similar to her, one that she can really relate to. And yet the people performing on screen are for lack of a better term, like kind of nepo babies, you know, that have access to the very ability to give her this representation because they're outside of the worlds of precarity and the loops of, you know, capitalist fatigue that like the viewing subject is trapped in or enmeshed in. It's so fascinating. Unfortunately, we have to end there. I could talk to you about TV all day, Hunter. This has been fascinating. Listeners, we've been speaking with Hunter Hargraves about his latest book, Uncomfortable Television. Thank you so much for joining us, Hunter. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Eric. You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Hunter Hargraves, author of Uncomfortable Television, and we now turn to our conversation with Phil Masiak, author of Avidly Reads Screen Time. We're excited to have LARB's TV editor, Phil Masiak, join us today. In addition to his work at LARB, Phil is a lecturer in English and American Culture Studies at Washington University, St. Louis, and the author of The Disappearing Christ, Secularism in the Silent Era. He's also a contributor to Slate, The New Republic, The Week, and other publications. But he joins us today to discuss his latest book, Avidly Reads Screen Time, part of a series from NYU Press. Part cultural criticism, part personal essay, Screen Time explores how fears over kids spending too much time playing video games and watching TV in the 90s has morphed into our current proliferation of ubiquitous screens that capture and even demand our attention seemingly everywhere and all the time. Exploring our changing relationship to screens and the stories they tell us, Screen Time looks at how what once was a threat has now become a metric tracked in every moment of our lives. Thanks so much for joining us, Phil.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with this idea of screens making us feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) I was curious which way to you is more important. Is it the moral sense of failure, of feeling bad because we know we're doing something wrong, or the actual embodied physical sense that sometimes looking at a screen can actually hurt us, affect our sleep. You even describe your eyes getting chapped after one all night Wikipedia rampage. So which to you is what you wanted to address more here?
3: Well, I think that part of what the book is is trying to do and what I try to do in the book is to understand the way in which all that stuff is kind of mushed up In the way that we perceive screens, the physical discomfort of looking at a screen for too long or realizing that you're distracted and you like run into somebody on the sidewalk, that kind of a thing, which just literally happened to me outside. (laughs) But also the sense of moral failure, right? The idea that articles and pundits have been saying that screens are public enemy number one for all sorts of social ills for, you know, the better part of several decades, that these things all kind of mush together, right? And they reinforce each other, right? So if you're reading and your eyes are sore at the end of the night, then you feel bad physically, but then you also associate that physical discomfort with a sense of, oh, I've done a, a bad thing, right? This is the, this was the wrong thing for me to have done. And I think they sort of reinforce each other in this kind of cycle. So all of that kind of gets smushed together. And all of the things that we then watch on those screens and read on those screens get smushed together. And, and a lot of the sort of meaningful differences, both between what is good and bad about screen time and also what's good and bad on screens get erased or blurred.
0: You write a lot in screen time about the experience of recapping episodes of shows like Mad Men and The Sopranos that were appointment viewing. So I'm curious to hear how you think the culture of the recap, which was so iconically identified with the very early 2000s, and actually helped a lot of people cut their careers, you know, like Richard Lawson went from writing these really goofy gossip girl recaps that were totally bizarre and zany, And now he's a film critic for Vanity Fair. Do you think that that culture of the recap and appointment viewing has kind of gone away or changed in our increasingly asynchronous and content-saturated streaming environment, where just not everybody is reliably watching the same thing at the same time? I
3: think it's changed uh, a lot. I'm not 100% sure if I can sort of track the economics of it, because I think that's a big part of it. You know, a lot of the big boom in streaming around appointment TV shows was around shows that had large audiences who were really interested in reading those recaps, right? So in the 21st century, that's, you know, The Sopranos and Mad Men and then Game of Thrones. You know, we your television at LARP was some of our best running pieces were Game of Thrones recaps or True Detective recaps. I think Succession has a little bit of that culture surrounding it today still. But uh, you're right, those early teens and aughts of the 21st century were really saturated with recaps galore. And I I remember, I I mentioned this in the book, there were a couple of sites that would post like recaps of recaps where you get a list of, well, who really recapped this episode this week? You know, from IndieWire or Vulture or something like that. And I remember when we were doing Mad Men recaps, it was always a real thrill when somebody picked one of our essays to be on that list because we really got the episode that week. I think you're really right to point out the idea of the recap is almost like, because it it was the main genre of this huge profusion of television criticism during that period, coming off of what you're referring to, the the sort of television without pity era and the sort of television without pity coaching tree of all these great cultural critics and, and TV critics who have come out of either writing for that site or writing back to writers on that site during those early years, that there is whether the recap is still a or the dominant form of criticism. And I would suggest, as you point out, that it isn't quite anymore in the same way. If it isn't the dominant form of criticism, it's the place where a lot of the best and, and sort of most insightful critics working now started working, right? They worked on that really granular level. And I think that You know, my favorite cultural criticism, the cultural criticism I aspire to write is incredibly detail-oriented and and granular in the way that I think you have to be if you're writing a good TV recap. And I think critics I respect now do that in part because of that sort of formal wave.
1: It seems to me that the primetime serial like these shows like Mad Men. I barely watch any good TV. I only watch bad TV. So (laughs) Succession Now, whatever. In the way that they become these cultural events, they're kind of the counterpoint to the screen time fear because as much as you're critiquing anxiety around screen time, you're also positing this positive experience of watching shows together, of having things be cultural events, of kind of these moments where something on television or on a screen brings us together. And that seems like a very different kind of phenomena than the splintered solo viewing, screen locked in, and also where it's not a single event. It's where screens become the portal to every single thing in your life. That seems like the more negative side. And then there's the primetime serial event opportunity for cultural criticism as the positive promise of the screen so is that a fair assessment of the two poles of your book
3: i think so to some extent i mean i think one of the one of the arguments i make in the book is that the sort of era of the primetime serial as you're describing it if we start it sort of in its late 80s early 90s genesis moment with those network shows like hill street blues and x files and and twin peaks and the screen time era are roughly contemporaneous. Screen time as a concept emerges in the early 1990s, and and this sort of form of television that's become so dominant over the course of the past several decades emerges at right around the same time. Tom Englehart, who sort of coined the contemporary usage of screen time, did so the same year that Twin Peaks went off the air. And so I think their histories are really not parallel, but in lots of ways, the same history. And so I think exactly what you're talking about, the idea that the primetime serial of the HBO era of the aughts and the teens was this sort of precision-crafted, television product that was meant to kind of assuage the worries of screen time, right? You know, you're worried that television is making your you and your children inattentive or distracted. Here's television that you have to pay close attention to, right? And, you know, you're worried that television is isolating you or making you lonely. Here's television you can watch with a bunch of other people and everybody talks about on the internet the next day. But also that it sort of contains that genre, contains a lot of the things people were worried about about screen time, right? So it's this intellectual, highly legitimated prestige genre, but it's also filled with violence and sex and nudity, right? And all these things that you can't have on network television, you can't have on, on broadcast. And so I think to some extent that genre, you know, from The Sopranos to Succession is in a lot of ways leveraged against all of these sort of cultural anxieties about screen time. And I think part of what I tried to do in the book, and I'm not sure how much I was able to square the circle on this, is to figure out, right, the way that shows like that, shows that, you know, are uncontroversially rewarding experiences, right? How do they share the same screen with reading Wikipedia horror plot synopses until 1.30 in the morning?
1: I want to just follow up about one aspect of Engelhardt's argument, which was really, I think, it seems to me about advertising, and the place of television in kids' lives more than actually like the content of what they were watching. I don't get a sense that you really agreed with this panic of his. So maybe you could just say how that article read to you now as being this like seminal document of screen panic.
3: Sure. Yeah, it's a funny article. And, you know, I think I approached this topic from a position of skepticism skepticism about the sort of moral panic aspect of screen time right the parenting manuals that call television digital heroin and things like that like that always seemed to me like hyperbolic to an unhelpful extent and, and so i think i approached this topic and looking back to find its origins the rhetorical origins and expecting to find a an essay that would feel a lot like that right that would be Scaremongering and all that, and I found I think a a much more ambivalent article, an essay that I've spent enough time with now that I I kind of respect it, even in the parts that I disagree with. And I think there are two aspects of it. One aspect, as you point to, is a, a very salient argument about the imbrication of advertising and television for kids. Now, Englehart sort of, I think, wrongly suggests that this is a new phenomenon in the 1980s. It's not new. It's, it was always a part of children's television, but it was deeply enmeshed in, in advertising. That had always been the case. But it's not wrong to point out that that's the case, right? That, you know, the examples that he points to that resist this, like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, are great pieces of, of television for children. And they, they are great in part because they resist that slippage between narrative content for kids and advertising content that's meant to sell things to them. And so to that extent, I think it's actually a pretty good kind of anti-consumerist critique of, of television. And it's a critique that television producers didn't really take up that well, as we know. But it's also, I think, a very, it's a good argument to that point. The part of Engelhart's argument, and I think this is somewhat dismissive of the actual essay, is that the thing that people took and ran with from that article were the sort of moral panicky aspects of it. The idea and the sort of rhetorical implication and that... This thing that Engelhardt is describing is is actually incredibly insidious and, and corrosive and, and toxic. And I think that there is a, a degree to which that imbrication of advertising and and television is corrosive and can be toxic. But I think that. When you read more contemporary analyses of, of screen time, people are really talking about like raw hours, that this is a poison, television is a poison, and we have to restrict our children's access to it because anything above a certain amount is going to, you know, rot their brains. And and I really don't think that's what the, the original argument was, was suggesting. It, it was a much more nuanced, I think critique of the way television is made and and the relationship between advertisers and television producers. But I think it's the moral panic flavor of the argument that's kind of
0: remained and, and become dominant in the discourse about it. That's American culture though, isn't it? We'll always run right towards the, you know, the moralistic, the moral panic argument. I wanted to to shift gears just a little bit to talk about, you know, so what we've mostly been talking about is content and reception, but the other side of your screen time story is actually about devices. And there is an older part of me that feels embarrassed to admit that I things that I have done for my entire life, so reading books, in some ways, I prefer reading them on a screen device, on a Kindle. Not on an iPad, that tires out my eyes. But there's something about like tackling something extremely weighty, like Q-Teen 84 by Haruki Murakami terrifying to have that sitting in your lap and realizing that you spent 25 minutes and girl you haven't even put a dent in this thing whereas like you know when you're on your your kindle you're like and click and click and click and click and if you don't look at the percentage completed you don't really have to worry about it or think about it too much that one way of transforming what used to be seen as kind of a good experience right so reading a physical book is now That's happening on screens in a host of different ways. We even have screens on our refrigerators that will tell us like when we're low on eggs, like it's just everything is mediated through the screen. So I'm curious what you kind of think of a world that's not just increasingly about content that we might feel different ways about, but is actually about pure mediation through the portal that is the screen.
3: Something that I think that the book is really invested in is resisting the urge to vilify things just because they appear on screens. And I think the past couple of years have really shown us a lot about how much of our lives can sometimes just happen on screens. And this, you know, I'm speaking from the perspective of a 40-year-old man here, right, who, you know, didn't grow up with iPhones, you know, until they they came out. And... I think that there is, you know, even for me as someone who's skeptical of, of these kinds of arguments, an initial like ugh, who wants to read a book on a screen. Right. It's a book. And, you know, like I'm not reading a thousand page novel unless I can look at that thing and, and say, like, put this on my shelf. And I'm done with it. So I, I, have, a, I have a very different experience of, of that from you. But I also think that there is a you know, it's still the book right? And you're engaging it. It's text, right? It's, it exists in a different format. It exists in a different medium. But the literature, if, if that's what you're getting out of it, is still there. And I think a good example of this was I teach at a university. And, you know, when the COVID sort of lockdown happened and we did our kind of virtual year online, it wasn't great for students. It wasn't great for faculty. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that that have nothing to do with screen interfaces, Right. There was a global pandemic, people were getting sick, people were having mental health problems during this time for all sorts of reasons, right? And I looked around and I you could tell that there were people who were saying, okay, here's my new teaching environment. I'm going to think about what I do in the classroom and figure out how that translates to a screen, how that translates to Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever. And there were other people, there are other, I think, people in all fields who just sort of resisted it entirely, right? I can't do what I do on a screen. I can't translate that to these formats. But for our students, many of whom are what, you know, scholars would call digital natives, right, who grew up with screens, who grew up with these interfaces, they're less good in a lot of ways than a sort of face-to-face, but they're also not nothing. They're not invalid. They're not untranslatable. And so, To some extent, I think a lot of specific issues that related to, you know, moving university instruction online were not about screens in and of themselves. It was about these generational divides, right? People who didn't grow up with screens trying to figure out how to be themselves, how to perform their pedagogy, how to be effective teachers in a space that felt very foreign to them, but teaching students in a space that didn't feel foreign to them to students, I think there was a much more of an ease with the screens. And that isn't to say that this was a perfect process and there were certainly all sorts of of systemic failures. But I think a lot of times the reason I bring this up is because I think screens bear the brunt of a lot of the critique of those events, right? It was the screens, right? And I think that very often it's when screens become the sort of fall guy for a social problem, there are generally a lot of other things happening as well.
1: Of course. I mean, it, it's not the technology in and of itself, but it's how it's applied. You know, and I think that's something that I I at least relate to in my feeling about phones is that they're a motor of commerce. They're made to be addictive. That's actually how they're formulated. It's not passive, but the technology in different hands with different people, you know, in control might be applied differently and not have the same... Re- results and how we would respond. Just that's one thing I think about. And it's interesting that you referenced this kind of like pushback against technology in the 90s that you felt like you were a part of by buying a typewriter, or listening to um, <laughs> records, you know. I thought that was interesting you saying that that was perhaps this unwitting way of kind of appeasing our parents, telling us that the screens had been bad. And I've seen articles about this now with kids who are like getting dumb phones. And of course, this is all from the perspective of, you know, me who only got a smartphone in the last few years. So take it with a grain of salt. But I'm wondering how you see all this kind of shaking down with your own children who you write about, how different your experience of screens, you know, seems from theirs how much that also you know plays into your argument.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is in a lot of ways where the book started was I've been editing television criticism at large for a long time. And for a long time before that, I've been writing it. And, you know, I think that coming up in that sort of recap era that, you know, we were talking about earlier really made me feel as though, or helped me to define criticism as something that is ultimately a social form of writing, right? I'm writing to other people. And if you're writing a recap very often and these days, you know, you're not writing to people who haven't seen the episode, you're writing to people who watched it essentially with you and want to sort of have a conversation about that episode afterwards. And so I thought about watching TV with my partner, with my friends, with my fellow writers, and I had a very clear sense of, you know, what my sort of viewing position is in relation to these shows and have tried, you know, Consciously to make that a part of my criticism, right? To understand that I'm not sort of writing from high atop the mountain about these TV shows, but rather just as a viewer, right? Here's my experience of this television show as a viewer. And having our first daughter, Maeve, really, I started to think for the first time about how my own TV viewership or screen viewership was no longer this sort of isolated thing. And, you know, I was in control of my own screen time, to some extent or another, but now I was in control of somebody else's screen time, right? And I had to start thinking about how they were going to be viewing things and what they were going to be viewing. And so having to think about this through the the lens of, of being a parent really changed a lot of the way that I thought about my own television writing. And I think that, the thing coming down the pike, I guess, in this context is that my kids are both too young to have devices of their own, right? So they don't have cell phones. You know, they're seven and three. and But that's coming. And they're aware of it, or may have at least the older one is, is aware of it. And, you know, she'll draw these funny little mock-up phones or iPads or laptops, and she'll put all of her little interests in them on little pretend apps. And she, there are these funny kind of little parody drawings, I think, of her, like, exposure to technology as this thing where, like, all of the things that you're interested in exist. And, and you know, she has screens at school. She did the COVID year, too, and a lot of it was on Microsoft Teams. So I think she got exposed, you know, sort of differently structured way than kids, you know, five years earlier maybe had been exposed to to screens. But, you know, it's something we do worry about in the future because, you know, right now we're still basically in control of what they watch and how they watch it and how much time and and all of that. And I feel like we have, to some extent, a, a much more, we've tried to not stigmatize screens and TV in the way that I think the sort of broader screen time discourse can tend to, in part because I think that the less we stigmatize it, the less they develop stigmas around it. And that's been part of our sort of parenting strategy. But, you know, the the reckoning is on its way, I think, in terms of the teenage years and social media and all of that. And I think that it's something that I don't look forward to necessarily, but it's something that I think we want to try to develop healthy relationships to screens and and talk to them about screen use. There's a great scholar who I quote in the book named Devorah Heitner, who writes about this a lot, and points to the, the fact that I also point to in the book, which is that there are a lot of studies about kids and screen use. They're really hard to devise. It's very hard to to really find out whether screen exposure or app exposure or social media exposure specifically is causing any particular outcome, right? You can basically trace the idea that screens before bedtime can cause sleep disruptions, but short of that, everything else is just kind of inferred, right? It might make sense to guess that way, and maybe it's true, but it's hard to really tell what precisely is causing this or that spike in responses from from kids. And so I think part of what Heitner writes about is, in that absence of sort of firm understanding of the relationship between social media and mental health say or what becomes much more important is the human relationships around screens right talking to your kids understanding what they use social media for and emphasizing <laughs> that you and they and the people they are interacting with on these on these sites are human beings and to be able to recognize healthy behaviors online from unhealthy behaviors. But, you know, that's somewhat of a utopian dream of of screen time. And I know that this is, there will be a sequel and it might not be as optimistic as this one is. <laughs>
0: I feel like that's a perfect place to end on that like optimistic <laughs> or a, a potentially pessimistic, currently optimistic, might be pessimistic soon.
1: We'll have you back in five years. Exactly. <laughs> to okay, check so. in
0: and see how it's going. Screen time 2.0. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll
3: gonna. be talking to you on a landline.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking with Phil Masiac about his most recent book, Avidly Reads Screen Time. Thanks so much for joining us, Phil. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to The Lab Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at The LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen teasley Vlad.